My name is Chris. I'm one of the elders here at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. We're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 5, on page 953 and 954 of the black Bibles that are in the chairs. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray. Father, we bow our hearts before you. You are glorious and powerful and just, and yet you are great in grace and mercy and love, and you gave your only begotten Son that all of us, God, could call out to you and have salvation from our sin. You gave us your holy word, by the apostles and prophets, and you embed that word in our hearts. It is engrafted in us, and you speak to us with your Holy Spirit. So as we hear the preaching now, I pray that it would be in truth and in boldness, and that you would show us from your word how we can be more like Christ, that you would open up to us the mysteries of God, and that we would surrender to you and admit to your sovereignty and we would put yourself, ourselves in your hands. So God, I gotta pray for your blessing on this service, that you would draw us closer to you, enfold us in your love, and teach us your justice. Amen. We come to the Word of God today, and um, if you're visiting with us and you're wondering what we do here, well, one of the things that we do is we sing and we give, and uh, it's a way that we have of worshiping God and responding to God, but what we also do is we... Um, gather around God's Word. We believe that the Bible is God's Word. In fact, we know it is God's Word. Uh, that's why it is said so many times, the Lord spoke or the Lord said. Um, the Word was written by men. Uh, we understand that, but they were men that were inspired or moved by God to write God's Word to us. So it's a very unique book. It's a very helpful book. In fact, it is our guide to life. And it helps us know about ourselves, and it helps us know what God wants of us, and how God works in us, and what God is like. 
And so for the last number of weeks, we've been uh, looking at this particular book of Corinthians, which was a letter that was written by an apostle named Paul to a, a local church in Corinth about uh, 2,000 years ago. But because we believe the Word of God is eternal, um, it will outlast all of us, and it will, in fact, even outlast this world, we understand that it has relevance and help for us today. And so we turn to this Word, and um, in, in, we've been in the midst of the first part of this book, which is about division and disunity in the church, and various causes for that and various solutions to that. And it's not unlike I was thinking about a, a family and a home. Um, there's very few families that I know that don't, from time to time, experience division or disunity for one reason or another. And uh, while this is not specifically written for our own homes, I think some of the advice that Paul gives here to individuals on how to live in the church is very helpful and relevant to us on how we live in our homes and how we interact with one another as husbands and wives and as children to parents. And so Paul is continuing to pick up this issue of division, what causes division, and how we ought to uh, respond or how we ought to think or how we ought to act in order to minimize division and bring unity in a church. And he's going to focus on a few things uh, in these verses that we've looked at, and we'll just touch on them. It's a lot for you to just go home and think of on your own further, but when we have a proper view of ourselves, when we have a proper view of others, when we have a proper view of the things that God blesses us with, and we have, when we have a proper view of our relationship towards God, we will make a significant blow to the heart of disunity and diversity. When we have a proper understanding of our calling and how we are to serve God as servants of Christ and stewards of God's gifts to us, and as we serve with the right motives, we will make a significant contribution to the unity of the church. So there's really three things that I just want to draw our attention to in this text um, and spend a little bit of time working through each one of them. And the first now is, is a command. It's the first of two commands that Paul is going to give to this church. And the very first thing he says to him, you might have noticed it in verse 18, is let no one deceive himself. This is really an instruction to every single one who is a follower of Jesus Christ in a local body of Christ. Let nobody be self-deceived. Well, what's, what's the issue here? What's he wrestling with? What are, what are we prone to be deceived towards? And he says, well, the, the issue is wisdom. And which source of wisdom to listen to? And where does our wisdom come from? Because following one sort of wisdom can lead to all sorts of problems, envy and strife and discord. And embracing another wisdom can lead to unity, peace, forgiveness, patience uh, amongst us. And so he says, let no one deceive himself by thinking that he can make sense of life apart from God or by relying on human wisdom, which is age-related or restricted. I have wrestled with this issue of wisdom a, a little bit this week, just not really knowing how to approach it, because in my mind there is both practical wisdom and spiritual wisdom. And I don't really know if it's helpful to divide those things or to separate them too closely. Uh, practical wisdom is the ability to take knowledge, raw facts, 
that we come to us in the world around us and apply it to life. And so wisdom is actually the application of knowledge. And we do that every day. We do it in our relationships. We do it in our jobs. We do it with our families. We do it uh, in, in, in our gardens. Whatever we find ourselves doing, we take knowledge that we know about something and we apply it, and the application of that is wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is largely, I think, what Paul has been talking about in this book, uh, the wisdom of God regarding salvation versus the wisdom of man regarding salvation. But the wisdom of God and spiritual wisdom is something that comes to us from above. It comes to us from God. It is something that has to be revealed to us or shown to us. And in the end of the day, both of these types of wisdom have their ultimate source in God. And that should make sense to us when we think about practical wisdom. Isn't it God who made this world and everything in it? And if God made this world and everything in it, then it makes sense to me that he understands how the stars work. He understands how certain woods work. He understands how animals function. He understands how different spices go together in one dish and not another dish. God understands the elements of everything that he had made. And so it makes sense to me that we seek wisdom both practically and spiritually from God. Now, the Bible tells us in a number of places this one particular line, and it, it varies it a little bit from time to time, but it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, that, I, I think, is, a, is a, such a significant verse, but what it really says that the way to make yourself, uh, make your way through life is to acknowledge that God is. I think that's what the fear of the Lord is. It's, a, it's an awe of God. It's an awareness of God. It's a recognition of God. And in every area of life, when we recognize God and stand in awe of God, that's the start of wisdom. Because as I've been saying, all wisdom comes from God. I was saying to you that there's wisdom that uh, brings about health and wholeness, and there's wisdom that brings about division. James talks about this. See, James distinguishes between wisdom from the world and wisdom from above. And he says this, But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and lie in defiance of the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. That is strong language describing wisdom that is age-locked by this present age. And then he says, For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every kind of evil. That is the product of human wisdom. That is the product of wisdom that is age-locked. Then he goes on and he says, But wisdom from above, i.e. wisdom from God, is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Two very different results from two very different sources of wisdom. And so Paul is saying again, let no one deceive himself to think that our earthbound wisdom is better than God's heaven-given wisdom. I was thinking about this when I was thinking about the book of Daniel that we just made our way through, and I was struck again and again and again there how God gave practical wisdom to uh, individuals, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It says there that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and all wisdom. 
And Daniel had understanding in visions and dreams, which just goes to show me that the wisdom of God is not just um, constricted to spiritual realities. As I said, God's wisdom applies to everything that he has made. And so if God knows who wrote a certain um, uh, uh, book of literature, then God knows how that was written. God knows its content, and God can give us understanding of that, whether it be Shakespeare or Homer or Plutarch or name your person in literature, God can help us understand it. And then I was reading about the building of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The building of the tabernacle was a, must have been an, a, an incredible journey as they made this uh, particular building that God had asked them to build, which was a shadow of the things in heaven. It was made with various woods, and it was made with various um, cloths and various animal skins. It was made with gold and metal and bronze. It was made with different embroideries and different stones. And, and as I was reading about that, I, 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 I reflected again what Moses said to the people. He says, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to divide, devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. He has inspired him to teach both him and Aholabab, the son of Ahismuch of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver and by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. My point simply is that God gives wisdom in those very practical aspects of life on how to mold gold and silver and bronze, on how to create different fabrics, on how to use different woods. Don't be deceived, and we'll come back to this in the context. Don't be deceived in thinking that you know everything or you don't need God to help you understand the materials and the things that you work with even in the physical world. And then I've been reading 1 Kings. Um, this is where I am in my reading program. I'm one of four places, and I've been sharing different things with the staff because I'm fascinated by the historical books and the practical wisdom there. But some of you recall how Solomon um, uh, was a, uh, came to a throne and he had this incredible kingdom. And God came to him one night in a dream and said, Listen, Solomon, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. I don't know what you would ask for if God ever asked you that question. But Solomon's answer was along the lines of God, this is a massive people. This is a diverse people. I don't know how to rule them. Give me wisdom. And so it says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke about trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And when the queen of Sheba, this is switching gears now to a later part, when the queen of Sheba came, she wanted to question him about his wisdom. 
And she said, when she had seen all of the wisdom of Solomon, that's a fascinating thing. Wisdom can be seen, not only heard, because of what you build and what you design. She says, when she had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered in the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She was left breathless because of the wisdom of God that was seen in everything that Solomon did. My point being this, loved ones, as we think about division and unity in the church, it is God who gives wisdom in any and any sphere of life, including the church. Don't be self-deceived into thinking you can solve all the problems of the world by yourself. You can solve all the problems of your home by yourself. You can solve all the problems related to work by yourself. Why not cry out to God who made everything and made us and knows everything and say, God, give me wisdom. And so, as we think particularly about the church here, and as the church is struggling Paul is saying to them, listen, don't be deceived. Don't be self-deceived. Don't think you know everything. Submit to the wisdom and power of God. But there's also another aspect of self-deception. And, and it also comes out in this text, and I'll, I'll get to it in a minute. I, I just want to sort of help our thinking a little bit, uh, because I, I think this is necessary. Sometimes we are self-deceived, because we don't want to accept the implications or the cost of truth. And that happens even in the church. We are so thrilled with our own wisdom, with our own accomplishments, with the books that we have written, with the service that we have done, that any sort of implication that there is a wisdom beyond us, there's a truth beyond us, or God is smarter than us, and we discard it. Some of you may... Uh, be familiar. I can't even. I, I was trying to rack my head uh, thinking of the name of the movie with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. And Tom Cruise is a lawyer, and he's uh, he's uh, questioning Jack Nicholson. Uh, these are uh, I don't remember the real names in the movie, but he's pushing for the truth, and he's questioning, he's questioning, he's questioning. And finally, he almost at the top of his lungs, uh, Tom Cruise, the lawyer, says to Jack Nicholson, "I want the truth." And Jack Nicholson responds, you can't handle the truth. And that's sometimes how we are in life. We don't want the truth because we can't handle the truth. We don't want to know what our kids have done. We don't want to know why they've done it because we don't want to have to deal with the implications of what they've done. And so we stick our heads in the sand. I understand, uh, again, and I'm trying to just illustrate this for you, that a, a movie just came out yesterday yesterday. Um, uh, uh, based on the book uh, and the life of Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. And uh, as I was listening to some of the descriptions of the movie, there was one scene that they were describing, and actually Lee Strobel was describing it, how he had gone to visit a man in hospital. The man had been in hospital because he was beat up horribly in prison. And he had been in prison because he was falsely accused and because the evidence against him wasn't presented. And Lee Strobel, who was a reporter, had contributed to the false information uh, that contributed to this man being falsely accused and ended up in prison and now beat up. And so Lee Strobel is now um, uh, uh, pictured as visiting this man in the hospital and, uh, and apologizing to him for not telling the truth. And the man says something to him like this. 
you missed the truth because you didn't want to see it. And so again, we think about this phrase that um, Paul is using here to the church. Don't be self-deceived. Finally, sometimes we miss the truth because the cost of truth. We really don't want to make decisions based on truth because of the implications for our life. And I'll give you a couple examples about them. I've been reading a a great book by Abdu H. Murray, um, and it's called The Grand Central Question. And he illustrates this fact um, that we don't accept truth and we we walk away from truth because of its cost. And he quotes a few lines from a play, Love and Shrimp. I've never heard the play, and I was going to Google it, but I take his word for it. And it highlights our dance around the truth. I made him swear he'd always tell me nothing but the truth. I promised him I never would resent it, no matter how unbearable, how harsh, how cruel. How come he thought I meant it? We don't want the truth, really. There's a well-known atheist, Thomas Nagel, and he wrote, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my beliefs. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And so he continues to persist in his self-deception. Or another atheist and Darwinian, Aldous Huxley, wrote, I wanted to believe the Darwinian idea. I chose to believe it not because I think there was enormous evidence for it, not because I believed it had the full authority to give interpretation to my origins, but I chose to believe it because it delivered me from trying to find meaning and freed me to my own erotic passions. You understand what he's saying there? I embraced Darwinian evolution not because I believe it or because the evidence substantially supports it, but because I don't want to be bothered with the pursuit of meaning and I want to live a life of free sexual pursuit. And he understand that the truth of God would put restrictions on his sexual activities and would force him to consider meaning in life. Some of you here today are maybe wrestling with Christianity, and you have for a long time. But you may have come to a point which is a dangerous point where you're now, you've embraced sort of a, a self-deception. And you've evaluated the cost of the truth of Christianity and what it will mean to your family, what it will mean to your job, what it might mean to your finances, all these sorts of things, which are true costs of following Christ. And you've said to yourselves, it's too expensive. I don't want that religion if that's what it's going to cost me. And so you continue in self-deception. And so my point simply being here is sometimes we are self-deceived because the truth is too costly. There's a few of them that are revealed in here. There's a wisdom of the world and a wisdom of God. Uh, Every one of us has to wrestle with that here this morning. And this is what Paul says. He says, don't don't get caught up in simply the human wisdom that is constricted by this age. Understand there's a wisdom of God. So there's two different wisdoms. Secondly, there's a physical world and a spiritual world, and they interact. 
This is what Paul is saying in this text when he's talking about a wisdom of this world and a wisdom of God. That's two different realities. And then he's saying, also note that there's an external reality and there's an internal reality. And we'll say a little bit more about this in a minute. That there's stuff that everybody sees about us. And, and as we serve in the church, and this is again the big picture, we're talking again about service in the church and about how we evaluate people as they serve. And he says there's an external thing, and we can see what people do. But it's a very dangerous thing to make assessments and judgments just based on what we see. Because he says God looks inside of us, how we think, and what motivates us. And so he says there's an external reality and an internal reality. And then he also says there is a present age and there is an age to come. And we ought not to think too highly of ourselves and our wisdom to deny all these other realities. We need to be teachable. And so that's really, I think, the first part of this text here in verses 18 uh, to 20. And I'm missing out some of the verses which we should look at, but I just want to skip over them. But really what Paul is getting at here is, listen, remain teachable. Remain humble. Understand that you don't have all the answers to the problems of the church, the problems of the world. You need to submit to God. Humble yourself before God and ask Him for His wisdom. And when we live by the wisdom of God, as James says, we will experience peace and harmony and joy. The second point that he makes is there's another challenge here. Not only is the first one a command, let no one deceive himself, but then he says in verse 21, let no one boast in men. This is another reminder that he's given to us. He's saying, listen, don't set all your hopes behind. Don't throw all your eggs in the basket. Don't believe solely in this man or this woman as, as the leader in a church or the, the one that will teach you theology or the one that will lead you to life. Don't boast in men or anything else for that matter. Because not only is it important to have a proper view of ourselves and what we know and don't know, but it's also important to have a proper view of others and, in fact, the expanse of gifts that God has given us. Notice there's a little phrase that frames uh, this section in verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. And then at the end of the verse, all are yours. This is an incredible statement for us in the church to think about. Uh, in a local church and certainly in a broader church um, framework, the universal church. But that frames the heart of what he's saying. Don't, don't be so narrow-minded in your focus and in your appreciation of the gifts and ministries and abilities and, uh, of one individual that you miss out on everything else that God has provided to you as a body of Christ, a local body. He's everything we have, every spiritual blessing that we have or will ever receive, all of it comes to us from God. And we belong to the body of Christ, body and soul, to God through Christ. All men, he says, like Paul and Apollos and Cephas, are gifts from God. They are simply servants through whom God has contributed and worked to our spiritual well-being. And he's really saying, don't get hung up on one person. Don't get hung up on one author. Don't get caught up on one individual that's particularly charismatic. Rather, look at everything God has provided for us in a body of Christ. Because everyone and everything comes to us from the hand of God. And so as we 
are embracing a local church body, and as we think about serving in the body, and as some have different roles, you know, we ought never to have a sort of a, a, a way of thinking that says, um, well, if I, uh, that's the one I'm going to pick. That's the one I'm going to follow. That's the one I really like. That's the one I'm going to model my service after. Pick them all and learn from every one of them. I, I was thinking of this just a little bit in, uh, in my reading. I, I really enjoy reading in a lot of different fields, but I like reading broadly in theology, and it's really changed me over the last nine or ten years. I used to particularly follow only a very narrow select group of authors and it wasn't harmful to me but it wasn't necessarily helpful to me because I've realized that I can learn a lot from a cessationist just as much as I can from a continuationist. I can learn a lot from one who is an all-millennialist as one who is a premillennialist. I can learn a lot from a one who is a, embraces Reformed theology as much as I can re- learn from one who embraces Pentecostal theology or charismatic theology. And why should I limit myself when God has given all of these gifts to the church that we might learn from? And it's the same way that we look at the body of Christ as we serve together here. Be thankful for everything that God has given us. And he talks about those things, doesn't he? He says there, um, uh, the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. Not through any one individual, but because you belong to Christ. And because Christ belongs to God. And so you see what Paul is doing? He's, he's bringing us back again, again and again, moving us away from human um, worship, moving us away from human wisdom to divine wisdom, to the worship of God, to the focus on Christ. So the takeaway from this is thankfulness. Just accept with gracious hearts the multiple gifts that God has given, even in a church like ours, as people serve you, as you serve them with their talents and abilities and gifts, what a joy it is to not have to pick one or two, but to say, they're all mine, all of you, and we're all yours. And then the final point that he makes here, which is uh, a long one in verses four, or chapter 4, 1 to 5, is this is how you ought to think. So then, it's a way of sort of wrapping everything up. We need to think properly. Um, And this helps, again, in the home or in an office place, but certainly it helps in the church. Paul Paul says to him, he says, do you want to know how to think about us? Like, here's Paul, this incredible apostle, and Apollos, and Cephas, a leader in the uh, Jewish church, and he says, do you want to know how to think about us? I'll tell you how to think about us. And I believe, loved ones, that this is also how we ought to think of ourselves and one another here in Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. The first thing he says to them is, listen, this is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ. I, I just have found that so helpful and such an important reminder to me that, that, that I, I have got away from that sometimes and I think, well, I'm serving you or I'm serving the elders board or I'm serving the deacons um, and, and I, I don't often in my head think you're serving Christ. And I need to change that orientation again or reorient myself. I'm not your servant and you're not my servant ultimately. I'm Christ's servant. And on the surface, that alone should result in unity. Because then it's not about me, it's not about you, it's all about Christ. We are all servants of Christ. And the word servant that he used here is not the, the normal one which, from w- which we get deacon from, diakonos, 
This is a word for servant that comes initially from uh, those that were under rowers that rowed in the bottom of those trimorangs with the big oars. They were never seen. They were always just whipped and beaded, and they just rowed the boat. And so that's how they served in rowing the boat. And that word came to then be used of just those who were helpers or those who were assistants of people in authority. And so when Jesus went to the synagogue early in his ministry, it says, and a servant gave him the scroll to read. That's the word that's used here. So it's simply a helper. So we are all helpers of Christ. We are all servants of Christ. He is our focus. And so let me ask you, as I've asked myself this week, do you see yourself, as you serve here in Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church, as first and foremost a servant of Christ? What a transformation a transformative impact that may have on those of us who haven't been thinking that way. And what a division killer that is to know that we're all serving the same Christ. Secondly, he says there, not only are we to you to regard us as servants of Christ, but as stewards of the ministry of God. I want you to understand that every single one of us here is a steward. We might say, well, I don't know that, Paul. Well, Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 1.10, he simply says this, as each one has received a gift, and remember last week I said that every single follower of Jesus Christ has received a gift for the common good of the body of Christ. So Peter says, if each one has received a gift, use it, uh, uh, just use it, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You understand what I'm trying to encourage us in, loved ones? That every single one of us has received a gift from God, and our exercise of that gift is a stewardship. What is a steward? Well, a steward is one who is appointed by an owner of a house or by the owner of something to manage affairs for them. They don't own them. They don't belong to them. They just manage them. They sort of work for them. And So in the ultimate spiritual sense, God, we are God's household. God has given each one of us who is a follower of Christ a stewardship or a gift that we ought to use in serving God and serving the people of God. Paul's stewardship was relating the mysteries of God, which is the truth about Christ and Christ crucified and that Christ is our Messiah. But we have different stewardships here in this particular body. And so I encourage you, First of all, to wrestle with, do you know what your gift is? Have you asked God? Have you asked others? Have you said, God, I'm I'm confused about this. I know your word tells me I have a gift. Will you show me what it is? And then do you understand, or those who do know what your gift is, are you using it with the background of being a steward of what God has blessed you with? In other words, as a steward, you will give an account, not to me, not to the people around you, but you will give an account to whose steward you are, which is God. And again, do you see how, how this will bring unity and peace in a church? That if in the end of the day we understand that all of us are simply serving God with the gifts that he has given us, then there's no room for quarreling and saying, well, uh, you know, I'm doing this for so-and-so, I'm doing this for so-and-so, this is my little corner of the church. And then notice one last thing on this, and we're getting very close to the end. He says there, Moreover, it is found that stewards be found, what? Faithful. 
You know, loved ones, we put so much pressure on ourselves to be seen to be successful, to be liked, to be helpful, to be patted on the back, to get little notes of thanks. What should drive us is faithfulness to God. God doesn't care about results. God doesn't care about things that as humans we care about in the same way. What matters to God is that we are faithful with what he has given us. Some he has given little. Some he has given a lot. It doesn't matter how much or what you've been given. What matters is that you be faithful. That you be trustworthy with the resources that he's given. Faithfulness is not optional. It's required. And God's criterion in ultimately scrutinizing our ministry will neither be success nor popularity, but faithfulness. That's the greatest encouragement we can give to one another. Be faithful. I feel like giving up. Just be faithful. No, no kids have come to the Lord in my three years of teaching Sunday. Be faithful. I visited how many people in the hospital and not once has one patted me on the back or said thanks. Be faithful. Be faithful. And then finally, we're answerable to God. We've been hinting at this all along. It doesn't matter in what sphere of life we live. Ultimately, we are answerable to God. Whether it's servant or whether it's stewardship, we are answerable to God. Why God? Why are we answerable to God? And this is such a help as well. We're not good at evaluating, really, are we? Because we really can only comment on what we see. And even... That is, is so impartial or so, so limited. We evaluate people on a limited base of circumstances. We evaluate people based on external observations. I don't see your heart. You don't see my heart. You don't know what it is that, if what motivated me to do something was out of pure motives and right motives and good intent or whether it was out of evil motives and evil intent. You don't know that. And so we need to be very careful in evaluating and judging one another as we serve in the body of Christ. It says, rather, we're to wait until the day. It's kind of like wait until your father gets home. I would say wait until God comes. That's really what Paul is saying here. Wait until the day of the Lord. That's when the true and right evaluation will take place. And notice what he says about God's evaluation. It says, he, who will bring to light... The things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the hearts. That's sobering. It's also encouraging. I think the first one is really encouraging. He will bring to light the things that are now hidden. That doesn't mean here I don't believe evil or sin. I, I think it just means that there is so much that goes on in somebody's serving that none of us know about. We don't know the time. We don't know the energy. We don't know the motives. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know how it started. We don't know how it ended. All we see is just such a small little snippet of what somebody has done. And if we make an evaluation on what we see in the moment, we are apt to make the wrong evaluation. And so Paul says there's coming a day when everything hidden will come to light and it will all make sense. And we'll say, of course that's why they did that. Of course that's why they did that. And then he says, secondly, and I think this is probably where it's a little bit more challenging, 
He will disclose the purposes of the hearts. I don't know about you. This one worries me. I don't really... Well, I want you to serve and out of right motives, but I can't see your heart. But I know my heart. And sometimes I'm troubled why I get up here and preach. Sometimes I'm troubled by my motive for visiting somebody in the hospital. Sometimes I'm troubled by the actions that I do that I know people will see because I know why I'm doing it. You don't. But God does. And the point is simply to be, you and I don't know the motives of people's hearts. So we need to be very, very careful in following somebody or in running away from somebody or in judging them by human standards because God sees it all. The evaluation of others meant little to him. I want to get to this point. Um, you know, in life, um, I appreciate uh, criticism and I appreciate applause. But I don't live for it or I'm trying not to live for it. Oh, I've got time. I'm going to tell this story. I remember when I was in um, Psychology 101 years and years ago, and we were talking about this kind of stuff, and there was, a, there was a, a study that they did, and the study was essentially along this. They wanted to see how people's reactions affected the professor who was teaching the class. And so they had talked to all the class, and they said to the class, listen, every time the professor starts moving over this way, start smiling, start leaning forward, start taking notes. And every time the professor starts uh, walking over this way, Start looking down, start chit-chatting, start, you know, just, just doing stuff. After a certain period of time, I can't remember what it was. You know where the professor was? <laughs> he was teaching the class from way over here. That is the impact sometimes of, of criticism and of applause. And so I don't want to be motivated by that. I'm thankful for it, but what I want to be motivated by is God's criticism and God's applause of me. And then he says, I don't even judge myself. I'm not even good at that. I'm, all, I'm so messed up sometimes in my head. Um, you're getting a picture of me that's kind of strange. Uh, I, I hope I'm normal. But, but I am. I, I sometimes can't even rightly assess why I did something or why I didn't do something. I can sometimes, you know, I can go to the Word and know when I've sinned and I can confess my sins. But sometimes it's just you know, was that a good sermon? Was that a bad sermon? Was that a good visit? Was that a... I don't know. But God knows. And so I'll leave it up to God. And that's what Paul says finally in the end. He says that's when each one of us will receive his commendation from God. And this comes back to the reward that we talked about last week. Do you know what the commendation of God, I think, is? Primarily? Well done. My good and faithful servant you have been faithful in blank now enter into your rest loved ones we would have so much and i believe we have great unity here in the church this is this sometimes is preventative and helpful for us because i do believe god has blessed us here with unity and with a lack of division this is just a reminder to us how to build on that and how to strengthen that so don't think too much of yourself. Don't line up behind any one individual. And consider yourself as a servant of Christ, a steward of God, 
and wait for God's condemnation, not man's. Father, thank you for your word today. I trust it has been a help as we've tried to explain it. I do ask that now you'll take whatever is wrong and has not been correct and true to your word and just let it dissolve away. But what has been pointing us in the right direction, will you just nurture it and strengthen it with the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.